Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is BIPOC Credits, a show that shines a light on the Black, Indigenous, and people of color who work in the booming BC film industry with high hopes of creating a more diverse Hollywood North behind and in front of the camera. Want to learn about the people behind your favorite movies and TV shows? Keep listening. Want to learn how to survive and thrive in the film industry? Keep listening. Want to convince your parent or guardian to let you be a part of the film industry? Keep listening. Welcome to BIPOC Credits. Here's your host, Andy Wong. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us for our very first episode of BIPOC Credits. My name is Andy Wong. I am the host of this show, and this project has been a dream of mine for the last year and a half, and it's only really possible because of my producer, Nightingale, as well as yourself, the listeners. So thank you, and we very much look forward to your feedback. For our very first guest, we have Ingo Liu and Amy Fox. Together, they are the producers of Trembling Void Studios and they've helmed some of the most iconic short films that's come out of Vancouver in the last five years. On this episode, they're going to talk about the changing landscape of diversity in Vancouver's film industry, as well as Amy's experience producing a TV show called The Switch and the challenges she faced because of the transgender story. Ingo is a production manager in the Vancouver film industry, and he's going to talk a bit about um, that role, a bit of a day in the life. And he's also going to give us some tips on how to be a good manager. I'm really excited to have this duo on board because they do talk a lot to studio executives. And when they do, they bring diversity into the forefront of their conversations. So I really wanted them to be able to share their stories. And, and I really wanted to hear some of the experiences that they've had. So without further ado, here is Ingo and Amy. Ingo, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I really love your uh, uh, just commitment to the indie film scene in Vancouver. Uh, I, I think I can speak for a lot of us because just like having talked to a lot of uh, filmmakers in BC, um, everyone mentions your name. That's nice to hear, you know, when you have a name like Ingo. Um you got to be in your best behavior. <clears throat> People remember that. So, uh, yeah, I think that maybe if I was Steve or Michael, I'd be more of a jerk. <laughs> uh, well, Ingo's a very cool name. I think uh, it's it'll be it'll be memorable. And uh, with the with the last name like Fox, Amy Fox, that's a also a very memorable name as well. Well, thank you. We'll start off with uh, what got you guys started into film, and, and more specifically, creating. Um, Trembling Void. My origin story in film is, I think, uh, a pretty unusual one. I'd say, um, you know, one day someone stole my bicycle and I was upset about it for a little while. And then I decided that enough is enough. We got to do something about this, this bike theft problem. And uh, some friends of mine and, and I started work building a bait bike. And this was back in the time when it was actually kind of tricky to GPS track stuff. You know, it wasn't necessarily... There wasn't a GPS chip in everything like there is now. And so we kind of had to cobble together a, uh, a, a bait bike 
that we could then lock up around the city and wait for someone to steal. And then when someone stole it, they would we'd go chase after them on our bike, holding video cameras and GoPros, being like, "Hey, that's my bike! Give it back!" That was uh, that's that that was that's how we got start how I got started. Now, at around the same time, uh, there was a municipal election in town in Vancouver, and uh, there was a candidate advocating for. Uh, wider use of bait bikes to catch bike thieves. And I, I, I learned about this in the voting booth and I immediately resolved to call this person up and say, hey, you know what? You're doing a cool thing. I'm doing a cool thing. Let's have coffee. Um, that person was Amy Fox, um, who was running for city council. And um, under the name of Evil Genius. Oh, and, uh, you know, that was that was uh, back in 2011, I think. And that's yep. uh, that's that's how our, our friendship and our, our, our eventual business partnership started. Um, fast forward a little while later, um, Amy had developed a TV series, a TV sitcom called The Switch, and she was looking for a producer and uh, asked if I would be willing to jump on board saying that, you know, uh-huh. there's not really any money, that there's not really a script, and uh, there's not really any cast, but it's real, it's a real opportunity, and uh that's the that was that was that was the I think one of our very first projects that we were started on and it was uh, quite a quite a significant one. Amy, you look like you were about to say something. Yeah, Maybe I was about to say something. So the way I got into film was getting volunteered for a comedy routine at a transgender event called Gender Euphoria, organized by Tian Neo Amos. That turned into a web pilot uh, because we realized we we're living in different cities. Trans people were fairly dispersed. Digital media is a great way of providing people with comedy and something uplifting. And that turned into a TV pilot. Right. Um, the TV pilot, we got some feedback from the network where they're like, if you want to do this again, you're going to have to make some major changes. And at that point, we'd spent most of our money and um, I knew Ingo. And so, yeah, I was like, this is a guy who I think would be very, very, very good at organizing people, which he is. We started working together. There was a small amount of money. There was not no money. We never asked people just to work for exposure. Um, yeah, the wages have been terrible. Uh, and uh, we made the, the switch. But before that, we also made a film called Floating Away, which mm-hmm. was an, an art film about how devoting yourself to art will ruin your life. We Really sh- uplifting. Very uplifting. We shot a music video for uh, for Tear Down the Wall with Kieran Strange, the one up on MTV and Much Music. And then while the switch was in post-production, we like were doing production services on three features in one year. Yeah, just jumped right into it, I guess, eh? And that's when we decided we were going to actually be business partners. Yeah, the company Trembling Void Studios. Wow. That was all within a matter of about a year and a half. That's very impressive, guys. Uh, in- incredible. Ingo, were you working on any uh, projects before you met Amy? Like, were you producing already at that point? Yeah, you know, the only thing that I'd really, I would say, produced in any meaningful capacity was this web series that I made about catching bike thieves. It was called To Catch a Bike Thief. And um, it was optioned by Gala Film, a production company in Montreal that does a lot of reality TV. And um, and and I, I do remember that there was a tremendous amount of press and publicity surrounding this, this show, which was very nascent and mostly just conceptual. But I think a lot of people were rightfully frustrated by their bikes continually being stolen and the fact that there was this group of people who were willing to make a TV show about it. Um, so I, I, I ended up being interviewed on, on TV a whole bunch and, and, and even flown across the country one time to, to appear on Canada AM. And I remember, like, I, I was gainfully employed still. Uh, I was working for a tech company at the time. I remember at the air, in the airport flying back, I, having had just this, this, this interview where somebody valued this thing that, I, that had, I'd created and come out of my brain, I thought to myself, if there's even a chance that I could make a living doing this, I'm going to take it. And I was about 30 years old at the time. And, um, and so I called my boss from the airport saying, all right, it's two weeks. I'm out. Is that bike show still on the internet? Can we, can people actually find this? Oh yeah. If you were to Google to catch a bike thief, uh, I'm sure you'll find it. Were you also uh, working as a uh, production manager and on, on bigger film sets while you were creating all of these projects? No. Um, the, the production manager end of things uh, was something that I did out of necessity. Um, so, you know, I, I always sort of had a pretty good sense of, uh, of how to organize projects and people. Um, 
and managing personalities and and uh, and and trying to see how the how the pieces all work well together. Um, so the, the project management or sort of the production management end of things was something that I just kind of did. Um, and as I went along in the film industry, I started to learn what the best practices were, what the proper way of doing things was. Um, often through a very embarrassing interaction with somebody saying, somebody more senior saying, that's weird, man. Why are you asking us to do that? Um, and I'd say, oh, is that not how it's done? Uh, oh, sorry. Okay. All right. My bad. This is, I guess we'll just, I, I guess we'll only work 12 hour days then, not 18 hour days. I, I'm exaggerating. I'm actually, I would never ask people to work 18 hours. <laughs> not anymore. Maybe back in the day. <laughs> when did you uh, get into production managing and, and what kind of projects have you work on, worked on like as a production manager? So in the film industry, um, the, uh, the, the production manager role is, uh, is, is one that is part of the director's guild. Uh, it's a DGC position. Um, and I mean, as somebody who, who was mostly interested in, in a career path as becoming a producer, I wasn't super interested in joining the guild. So once again, I mean, all, all of the work that I did um, as a PM, certainly self-taught, but also um, outside of the, the 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 union right so that means that the types of the scale of projects that we were working on typically um under under two million dollars is um that, that that that's the scale of production where the, the the guild doesn't really tend to get involved or doesn't feel like they need to get involved um so so most of the production services work that that we did um professionally outside of our own company those were all uh, features or, uh, or or projects that were um less than that did you do any what did you do any crew positions that led up to your uh experience as a production manager or did you just kind of like skip all of that because you skipped the whole union route and and just kind of jumped right into production managing the pm stuff i mean i was just doing before i even realized that that was an official title um other things that i did uh in independent film prior to be, to 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 taking on that 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 identity um was a lot of assistant directing. Um, and there too, I mean, it's something that was largely self-taught. I remember the first time that I was an AD, I saw a post on Facebook, somebody saying that they're looking for an AD. Um, and I had just learned the day before in um, our, my, my community college program for, for filmmaking, what an AD was and what they did. And I said, well, I'm pretty sure I could do that. So I did. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I ended up doing a fair amount of um, of uh, ADing of short films, music videos, corporate videos, just just little stuff, weekend warrior type gigs um, that would generally pay zero or you know if I was lucky maybe a hundred dollars a day honorarium, um, and uh, just all these passion projects, right? And so that was that was my way of learning the process. And once again, you know, I mean, there was uh, generally I was working with people a lot more experienced in the film industry than me, and they would perhaps gently, uh, sometimes not so gently, uh, tell me what if I if I was if I was not doing something correct or if I was way offside. Um, for example, I remember uh, I, was, I was working with a with a very experienced cinematographer who uh, on on a on a concept trailer who said to me, "You know, I'm just going to keep on working until you say roll sound, right? Like I know you think that." You're waiting for me to be ready to shoot, but I'm just like the way it works on a set is when the AD says roll, you roll, <laughs> if you're ready or not. So I'm going to be continuing to tweak until you say it's time to go. And I was like, what? I have that power? Wow. Yeah. So anyways, that was, it was eye opening. Can you talk about what a production manager does and like the kind of responsibilities that you're in charge of? Sure. I mean, um, the production manager is ultimately responsible to the production and to the producer to deliver the project on schedule and on budget. And that means uh, that you're hiring crew. It means that you're uh, managing the overseeing the schedule. It means that you are also involved in um, all of the logistics that are involved, uh, transportation, locations. Um, but also the legal stuff as well. There's a, there's a legal component 
that involves uh, uh, due diligence, looking at contracts, um, making sure that uh, the production uh, has a plan to get through and not run out of money before you run out of things to shoot. What would be like a day in the life of a production manager? Wake up at um, 6 or 6.30 in the morning. You check your text messages and your emails and you realize that there's a couple of things on fire. Metaphorically, not literally. Sometimes. (laughs) As you have your morning coffee, you start to triage and decide, okay, which of these things are the most important to deal with right now? And, um, and, and kind of come up with a plan. If there's anything that must, you must take in action immediately, you can call somebody and delegate and say, take care of this right now. All right, then now you have, uh, you've probably arrived at set by this point. And um, we're assuming that we're in principal photography. Um, the production manager's role begins well before that, right, in pre-production. Um, but, uh, but let's assume this is a shooting day. Um, you you want to make sure that you are on set and you, you see what's happening that you, you, that, and that people see you as well. I think that's uh, that's equally important. Even if you don't have anything to say or anything to do, you need to make sure that um, you have a presence on set and that people understand that you uh, you're, you're there for them. And I, and I think that's a big part of it uh, that, that, um, that you got to understand that it's, it's not about being a boss or being uh, dictatorial, but it's more about, letting people know that you're there to support them, whatever it is that they need within reason, obviously. Right. If you know, and uh, I mean, my big thing in productions is if I'm producing or if I'm the PM, I will walk through walls and move mountains to make it happen if it's within my power to do so. So, so you're there, you're on set. You're, uh, you're also, you know, a lot, a lot of times, a lot of things that come up, uh, that people will come to you with at that point. Um, they might have anything to do with what's happening right now or, in the next coming weeks or months or anything like that, there might be uh, uh, concerns about personnel or payroll or, you know, uh, interpersonal issues that you sometimes need to get involved in. But ultimately, um, it's it's just about making sure that uh, that the production is running smoothly and that uh, you're able to get your day and that uh, that your team has what they need to make it happen. So do you often need to know exactly what's happening on set at all times? Do we have to know what's happening minute to minute uh, on, on set? I mean, ultimately, the more you know, the more you're better able to respond to issues. Um, having said that, so many things happen, you do kind of have to pick and choose what you focus on. And um, a, a really important lesson that I learned early on in my career that uh, – and there's a key grip on the switch. He actually told me because he saw me running around. This is like a, very early in my producing career. And he saw me running around trying to put out every single fire and placate every single person and make sure everybody was, was, was happy. And he said, listen, you're going about this all wrong. You're going to drive yourself insane. You know, there's only so many, uh, there's only so many things you can care about. And uh, he's, he put it best. He said that you, in film, there are mumbles, grumbles, and rumbles. And, you know, as a, if you are in charge, the mumbles, when people are like, oh, uh, guess we're having chicken for lunch again. Just let it go. There's nothing you can do. That's just, that's just people just voicing their dissatisfaction about the fact that they're tired or, you know, like it's, uh, generally it's, it's just nothing. Um, when people start grumbling, right, this is more about, uh, uh, you know, they're talking to each other, be like, Hey, have you noticed that like, you know, pay is, is pay like our, our paychecks are, 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 are a little bit light. Uh, you, you know, this too, right. You, and, and, and this, you know, this is, this is something you might want to start to think about sort of taking action on, but it's not something that you need to immediately drop everything and deal with. It's something you can take your time, formulate a thoughtful response and deal with appropriately. Um, but then when there's rumbles as in food doesn't show up for lunch, uh, yeah, you drop everything and you deal with that immediately. Right. And so I think the, the temptation for a lot of junior producers is to treat everything as though it is a drop everything and fix it right now. Um, and that's a surefire way to burn yourself out. So yeah, that's, uh, that's something I don't really do so much anymore. That's, that's some awesome advice. Cause I definitely am in one of those 
positions where I I try to uh, extinguish all the fires, <laughs> regardless of how uh, how important they are. So yeah, that's some awesome advice. Uh, can you talk about a mistake that you've made on the job and and uh, a consequence that you've faced out of it and how you dealt with that? I mean, I only make mistakes. That's the only way I learn. Um, I've uh, I've been I've been saying to Amy recently that uh, as people have started to trust us more and look to us as an authority. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little scary. It's a little frightening, but then I realize how much we actually know. And then when I realize everything that we know, it's because we screwed something up really badly and had to pay the price. Um, so, you know, you're going to have to narrow it down a little bit when you say, can you talk about just one thing you screwed up, uh, and one mistake you made, because I think it's uh, it's probably a litany, uh, at this point, but on the plus side, it just, it makes us better producers because it means that we can, um, we can see the signs uh, well in advance and, uh, and, and, and move to correct them or prevent them from happening. Right. A couple examples of what that might look like is rushing into production with a script that's not quite ready. Here in Vancouver, um, we are blessed with the fact that we have an incredibly vibrant film industry. And, uh, and a byproduct of that is that we have an indie film scene that is just burgeoning. Having said that, it also means that anybody who's got a script and a couple of bucks is like, let's shoot. That's a problem because uh, half the time the scripts are garbage. And what we really, really need to do is focus on the story, on the characters, and uh, just making sure that the, story, that the film or the show is relatable in ways that uh, any audience can can come at it and it's not high concept or abstract it's just entertaining and it's 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 something that that is uh, that's good to watch right um other parts of canada i think like uh like in quebec for example i know that they spend a lot more time developing scripts because they don't have access to production in the same ways that we do here at least that's my theory and as a result um any of the films that are nominated for best picture uh, they come out of that part of the world, not Vancouver. So I'd, I'd really love to change that in Vancouver. If we could uh, have uh, have some independent filmmakers here nominated for best screenwriter, best picture, best foreign film, because um, yeah, because we, we rush into production. Mm -hmm. Another mistake that I think that um, I'm very happy to share uh, in ways that hopefully prevents other people from making the same mistake is um, putting the wrong person into the job. Um, so essentially setting someone up for, for failure, right? So if you bring on somebody who's not capable, not qualified, um, to do the job, it's, it's going to backfire. It, it just will, unfortunately. Um, and so, so the key there is, is about supporting your people, but also recognizing and understanding their limitations. So if you have, um, somebody who's perhaps not quite ready for the role, making sure that they have the mentorship and the, uh, the supports available. Um, if you have somebody who's uh, perhaps too, too senior for the role and they just don't really have time to devote to it, making sure that they have uh, people on their team that they can delegate to. Right. You know, uh, on the switch, for example, though, you know, we, uh, um, we, we developed uh, a training program for our cast, right? So I think I mentioned at the off the top um, and Amy was talking about this as well, how the broadcaster that had agreed to take on the switch um, just wasn't happy with the cast that we'd selected, right? And so it was very important for us uh, as a diversity mandate to make sure that we uh, bring on trans actors to play trans characters, right? And uh, at the time, now this was before it was 2014, I think, or 2013 even at the time, 2014. And this is, yes, very early on. And so the idea that we would be able to just to, to do a general casting call and say we want trans actors was, you know, next to impossible. So what we ended up doing is we ended up having, uh, with, with the assistance of the, 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 the Canada Council for the Arts, we're able to put together a bit of a training program uh, uh, for, for our cast, right, where we bring in uh, instructors for, for comedy, improv, timing, and and basically putting for, I think it was eight months or something like that. Bingo for May. 
This was before we had assistance from the Canada Council for the Arts. Um, so we did it on our own steam? We did it on our own steam. And when we were telling people that here's what we're doing and why we are doing it, this is a training program for people who have barriers to castability. Um, people who were very, very qualified acting teachers would say, all right, I'll cut you a deal. These yeah. uh, these cast members who were were originally casted, what was what was the issue that the network had with them? Like at the end of the day, I mean, they're they're a, they're a, a broadcaster and they've got ratings uh, to worry about. And I think uh, people who watch cable TV are used to a certain standard of uh, of, of performance. And um, I, I think it's it's unreasonable to think that somebody who hasn't been given the same opportunities as an actor would necessarily be able to rise to that challenge, right? And so it was about bridging that gap and 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 close, closing the distance between where they were and the standard that um, that would be required to carry a network TV show. It was also about breaking down specifically what was lacking in people's performances. One of the things that we shoot a lot of in Vancouver, we have a lot of like we have Hallmark movies, we have uh, uh, CW shows that shoot here, a lot of and a lot of procedurals, right? All, all dra- TV American drama all the time. And we also have this huge improv comedy scene in Vancouver, but there's not a lot of people who know how to do comedy on camera. Now, fortunately, we knew someone named Ro Yu who uh, was on Mr. Young. He's been, uh, he's a, like a really skilled TV comedian. And he could go, okay, this is how you be funny on camera. And so it wasn't like we're going to put these people, everyone that we're working with, including myself, through like the Sorbonne of acting. It was here are the skills that you need. You will need to know how to do this, 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 and this. You need to be able to work the script, break it down, know how to use like big energy, how to use the camera. Because we have a lot of people who do improv comedy in, in Vancouver who don't know, like, are like, okay, cool, I'm going to give my line now. Oh, uh, what I have to get it off of a script? Yeah. Um, Let's bridge that. Gotcha, gotcha. So when when uh, when you guys moved into the second season, uh, it was more about training the actors you had and not necessarily replacing them. Is that correct? This was to get into our first season. So um, there had been a pilot um, that that was presented to the network. It actually aired, but they said that's that's enough of that. Thank you very much. If we're gonna do a full first season, we're gonna need to see a new cast. We're gonna need you're gonna need to come up with some money. And um, also, the scripts are kind of not very good, so let's uh, let's let's work on those as well. It's it's good except for everything. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, when uh, uh, talking about um, how how you end up casting, um, how has that changed uh, from like when you first started then and and now with with the current push for diversity and and getting the uh, casting specificities uh accurate well uh for the switch especially the switch season one you we have this very very large cast we had i don't know how many people we're talking about a six episode tv series right and um well six episode tv season so far maybe it'll be more someday and our mandate was that we needed to have trans people in trans roles um and our other mandate is hey this thing's shot and set in vancouver so like we need to have like 50% 50% people of color in all the major roles and in all and in all the minor roles. So not not just background. Uh, because otherwise, like it it's like for at least the trans content, it's like we have all this, it's an uplifting story about human rights with none of the people involved that it is about. Um, so that somebody else can make money. Come and see it and give us an Oscar. And we want to see, you know, not do that ever. Ever. Um now, there's a lot of problems in the film industry that are really baked into the systems of how we do things. There's huge amount of discrimination on every axis, on class, race, ability, gender identity, sexual orientation, nationality, everything. And it's not just enough to say, hey, let's not do that. That doesn't go very far. You have to go, what's causing these problems? So for casting, what happens is the casting system is designed for people who are already highly castable. And what that means, I'm sure is not much of a surprise to everybody here. It's white. It's having an American or or like Canadian American accent. It's looking a particular way. It's all it's it's being a particular weight. 
It's not being out as particular things, etc. So when you put out a breakdown, the entire casting industry is actually built around this idea that it's a sub, very small, like 2% of the population that are allowed to be actors. And they will go out and they will get jobs where you need to be conventionally pretty in these really discriminatory ways. And it's not a big deal if you need to take some time off to go and shoot an audition. But for the rest of humanity, we have other stuff going on. And you can't just be like, oh, I got a breakdown last night from that agent I have. I will drop all of my plans for the next eight hours and get off book and give you exactly the performance you do because I have lots of coaching available. So we have this idea called not just thinking outside of the box, but thinking in a different box. Mm. What we're looking at is a human resources problem. And so what we do is what would any other industry do? Like if you're trying to hire a surgeon, you're not like, okay, cool. Uh, show up tomorrow and we'll give you a demo thing. You go, okay, wait, okay, well, who are the people we could be hiring? Let's give people time to prepare, then we'll have an interview. So what we did is a lot of people don't have a lot of experience in exactly, they don't have, very few people have experience in television comedy. Um, so what we said is, here's the script, it's one page, um, make sure that we can see you and then we can hear you and then have a second person in the room to read it off of. And then we made it super clear, like, we do not care what your weight is. We do not care what color you are. We do not care if you have an accent that does not sound like a standard North American TV accent, etc. We put that all in there because otherwise people are just like, I'm not going to waste my time with this. And then we had around, we had like 140 people off the hop. Well, actually, we had to keep pushing it. Then, oh, right. The other part is how do we get this in front of the people we want? So we used social media as much as we could to make sure it would land in front of trans people. And we also made it clear when we said trans, we're like any kind of trans, like non-binary, gender variant, um, gender, if, fluid. gender fluid, you name it. And um, we had a huge number of people put in their put in their names. And then we we're like, okay, great. Here's a longer script for about a third of those people. And then again, and we narrowed it down to four people. And we got Nyla Rose out of this for our lead. And we got a wonderful cast, some of whom were there already from the show and some of whom are new. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I've heard a lot from other, from other places that the reason why they don't find they don't find like you know accurate casting is because there's a lack of um, people out there who are actors from these uh, from these communities, and and from what I'm hearing is that they probably just haven't done the work to find uh, to to get that opportunity out there to the right people. 
Oh, absolutely. And we've seen many, many other shows serving many, many other dem demographics. We've seen uh, indigenous shows. We've seen shows where it's set in Vancouver and the cast needs to speak Korean fluently and they need middle-aged leads. And people, if they go out and they break down, here's exactly what we need, and you work around a realistic schedule for other people and you do outreach, you will get your cast. Um, sorry, the other part of it is not being overly specific with your casting needs. Um, I actually don't believe in authentic casting. I believe in equitable casting. So in the show, if it's like if someone is like a trans woman and wants to play a trans man and they can pull it off, that's fantastic. If somebody is gender variant and they want to play someone who's non-binary, I'm like, okay, cool, whatever, and vice versa. Um, we wrote the show to be as open as possible. So it's like these characters are related as godparent and goddaughter. That way they don't have to look anything like each other. Um, and the age ranges we had just as broad as possible. And that allows us to not scare off people who could be wonderful, wonderful performers. Gotcha. Opening, opening up that, uh, that uh, character description so that more people can apply and not limiting yourself too much um, will, will allow for better diversity is what I'm understanding from that. But to address the question of, you know, is it possible? It's just a question of people just not looking hard enough. Yes. I mean, fundamentally, yes, it is just a matter of will. Um, and, you know, I think that if you put your mind to it, you're, you're very much able to find the people. And I think that if you're also willing to go to the extra mile and meet them where they are at, which is to say, if we're talking about equity here, we're saying, well, perhaps not everyone has had the opportunities that allow them to perform at that level yet. How can we get them there? And I think that's a really important part that producers need to understand that they have a responsibility there. It's not just to say, we looked and there wasn't anybody qualified or anybody good. So we're going to stick with the white people that we wanted in the first place. Uh, from a producer standpoint, like what kind of um, solution could there be to get those actors that they want to that level? Like, is it a producer's job to like hire a, a acting coach on set for, for these uh, newer actors or, or what's, what's kind of your opinion on that? The thing about the job of producer is that there's not a specific piece of paper that says, this is how you behave as a producer. The job of a producer is to get the job done. And if the job, Getting the job done means that you start to have uh, perhaps a more diverse or inclusive cast or crew or stories. Um, you figure it out, right? And and sometimes figuring it out involves providing that that extra those extra resources for people to 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 get to that level. Um, sometimes it involves, um, as Amy said, looking in a different box, not just thinking outside the box, looking in a different box altogether, and saying how would a different organization solve this problem? Um, it's just about problem solving. And, you know, and, and if you know where you want to go, where you want your ship to end up, you just got to point yourself in that, orient yourself in that direction and overcome the hurdles as, as they appear. And I can't necessarily say what those hurdles are, but, you know, any producer who's worth a look will be able to figure it out. That's a, that's, that's a very good point. Uh, and Thank you for that. That was that was excellent. Uh, I'm I'm gonna move on to another topic. When you're working with like a, a bigger network, do you take into consideration like you know what that network's uh, stances on on uh, diversity and and how you can affect that? Is that ever in your mind when you're considering who you're working with? So you're you're asking me in the the vacuum of. Uh of a garage where it's just us talking here and uh, where we can wax philosophically and say, Oh yes, I believe in my heart. This is what's important. But you know, it's also true that, uh, that we are also working professionals and have rents and mortgages to pay. And ultimately uh, we're providing jobs and work for others who are in a similar position. Um, the question is perhaps more, what is the, what is the approach that we would take in working with somebody who uh, who objected to uh, the the ethnic or demographic makeup of content that that we have, and and, and what are some ways that we could uh, circumvent that, and and you know still maintain, you know have work. I think it involves a conversation with the network or the distributor that 
shows them that it is in their own financial interest to have a more inclusive and diverse piece of content. Um, and that, that, that is an argument that is easier to make in 2021 than it was in 2014 or 2015 when we were producing the switch. Did you, did you receive pushback when you were, uh, uh, producing the switch to hire a certain way? I would say so. Yeah. I mean, Amy sounds like she wants to say something in this regard. Amy, if you want to speak to the casting end of things. Um, All right. So when we took the switch around in the first place to try and move it from its shot, here's a pilot, we want to make more of it. Can you broadcast this? The amount of pushback that we got for having a show about trans people at all was massive so these big tv markets where things get sold like you go there and it's like there are colors of credit cards there i have never seen before there are people are drinking booze over lunch that costs more than my rent yeah these are the people who play golf with donald trump who are responsible for buying and selling about 50 percent of the media that we see maybe more and uh they're also the ones who can afford to go to all these things so uh yeah yeah the, it it is it is an old boys club, and um, the push against that is to think of all the ways that first for them it was like who's going to want to watch a trans series? It's not trans people. We don't know what the trans demographics are. It's saying like, look, people love seeing good, interesting trans content. Look at look at a talk show. Look how many talk shows have trans people on them, right? People want to see this, even when it's trashy, even if it's whether it's sensitive or whether it's not. People are really interested. Um, there's a lot of pushback against that. We still get feedback from our salespeople. It's a market they haven't considered before that is technically untapped in their in their eyes. Yeah, they think it's a different market. They assume that the only people who are going to want to see a particular kind of content about a particular kind of diversity are people in that demographic. Um, and like they thought Sex in the City was a niche show because it's about women. Right? Um, this... I, Sorry, these are awful things that I'm saying. This is this is what one will hear if one tries to sell television. Um, and so what that means is like when they hear a trans show, they're like, only trans people are going to watch this. There's no transgender network. And the same thing is going to go if you're talking about older people. It's going to be talk going on if you're talking about people whose parents come from other countries. It is going to happen if you're talking about religious diversity, racial diversity, disability, etc. There's this default assumption that most people are not interested in whatever this is, which is which is a shame and it's false. And there are so many examples um, around this that are dem- demonstrating this is, this is false. And you take a look at your average like adventure movie that's, I don't know, maybe it's set in medieval England. Like, do only people from medieval England want to watch movies set in medieval England? No. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I believe only astronauts are allowed to watch Star Trek. Yes, that's right. Only astronauts are allowed to watch Star Trek. As, as far as how do we work with people, it's always a process of negotiation when someone's coming in. And sometimes people are coming to us and saying, I want to make this show about my community that is underrepresented. And we're like, awesome. Let's help you. Let's figure out a way of getting this to work for you, whether we wind up working together or not. This, this is great. Easy consultation. Someone mm-hmm. comes to us. And they say, we want to make this thing and we haven't thought about it. Then we say, okay, well, this is what's really important to us in terms of casting and crewing. How can we make that happen together? Um, Other times, maybe we've been working production services on something and one person has been constantly in the way. Then the next time we say, hey, we're willing to work with them again, but we really got to have a firm commitment around diversity before we ever ever work on a project together yeah it's always a process of negotiation when you're hiring crew members do you keep the diversity aspect in mind or or are you looking more for the people who have done the job it's certainly necessary for us to uh to to be as inclusive as we can in in crewing up and 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 that that diversity and inclusion are as important behind the camera as in front um and, uh, you know, it's also important that we have qualified professionals working in the, in this capacity, right? So, I mean, I, I think I would never, 
uh, I never underestimate the capacity of, of somebody who's young and hungry for the opportunity, but there's also something to be said about experience and, and it's very difficult to, to replace that. So the question of uh, that, that, that you're, that, that you're stating is, uh, is, is an important one, but it's not a binary one. And this is what, is what we need to understand. It's not saying, do we hire diversely or do we hire qualified people? It's, that's not really the question. The question is more to say, what is the ultimate goal here? What are we trying to, to achieve? Which is to say, if, if the end goal is to arrive at a more diverse workforce, there's more ways than one to, to get there without just designating the, the, the head of the department uh, as, you know, who happens to be of some particular ethnicity. Um, there are, what's important is creating opportunities for people who may require them, uh, who may not have had them in the past. Um, anything from creating training and mentorship opportunities to, uh, staffing assistants, um, in, in, uh, who, who will then be able to move up and, and, and observe and, and learn and, and move up into those roles. There's necessarily a process, a pipeline that helps people arrive at the, at the highest levels, right? You can't get to the highest level without sort of going all the way through that, right? So if we think of a director, a writer, cinematographer, um, <clears throat> for them to, to, to be asked to step into that role in, 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 a, in a major Hollywood movie, for example, um, they will have had to have a lot of opportunities to practice their craft up until that point. And before that can happen, they need to have had a lot of the fundamentals, right? Opportunity to just be on set and to know what film a film set is like and to to even have an interest in film and seeing themselves in that capacity, right? And so um, you know, if I if I'm a if I'm a young person just starting out in film and I look around and I don't see anybody who looks like me in those roles, um I, I might get discouraged or I might just assume on on some level fundamentally that I'm not that's not for me. Um, so as part of that pipeline, that process is allowing people who are just starting out in the industry to see themselves in, in, in those roles. Right. Um, and, and that might just be something as simple as showing up to set and shadowing somebody. Yeah. Have you created any, uh, any of those, uh, opportunities yourself with trembling void or any of the production managing, uh, uh, uh projects that you've done? Yeah. Um, now, for, fortunately, we aren't the only people who, are, who think like this. There are some organizations in town. Uh, there's an organization called Intersections. Intersections Youth Media Opportunities Media. for Youth. Say it again, Amy. Intersections Media Opportunities for Youth. Yeah. Uh, there are other programs like the uh, Capilano Indigenous Digital Filmmaking Program. I IDF. IDF. Mm -hmm. And um, there are all these different film festivals, at, at like both big film festivals and small film festivals, uh, some of which are like very like out there in terms of like, this is about trying to broaden the scope of things. And others of them just it, it more kind of speaks in in some ways. So you have like women in the director's chair, you have uh, the Mighty Asian Film Festival, You've got even these 24-hour film festivals. It's a great way for people to go, oh, wait, hey, I, I can try this out. I, I can get in. I can go to a film festival. I can use this as a launching platform to get things in other places. Just to get that experience. Yeah. Yep. And you can go to uh, the Directors Guild of Canada and the International Cinematographers Guild, um, as well as the Union British Columbia Performers, um, that is not just about actors, but is also about choreographers and stunt uh, performers and stunt coordinators and all that other good stuff. And say, hey, uh, we want to be able to crew up diversely. Can you help us? Can you help us meet some people? Um, and then you can. You also have things like the University of Columbia Performers providing training internally, um, which you can help with if you want. You can go to those training programs and say, hey, now that people are trained, would you like to try that out on a set? Um, things that you can do on a set if you are in a position to do so is. You can be. You can break everything down, and you can set your targets. You can also follow up with that by going, okay, who needs the next step to get into their career? And so you can go to all these organizations to find people. Um, you can also talk to these department heads and say, by the way, this is how we're doing things in terms of hiring. Please keep an eye out. We've actually found that works pretty well. Um, and you can give people time to train. 
Did you guys ever have to uh, undergo some kind of mind shift um, when you became gatekeepers in order to put yourself in the position of being a boss per se? I've realized over time coming from more of like a nonprofit and community organizing background that getting things done is often a, an emotionally hard and cold task. It's up to us as managers to make sure that we are as kind to people as possible. But the uh, traditional, more activist route, it's like everyone can come, do whatever you want, put whatever time in you want, uh, is, does, not, does not work, is not as effective, even in many activist fields, as one might like. It's a good way of getting people out to a march with some signs. But when it comes to organizing a group of people for a time-driven, budget-conscious, creative endeavor, you have to really look at what people's strengths, weaknesses, and limitations are. And then to do that with an eye to being socially conscious, you also have to think about what role you are playing in changing existing negative patterns. Whatever you're setting up, whether that's, uh, let's say, a, a writing team, you have to be really conscious of exactly where people are in terms of their skills. Because it is not doing someone a favor to give them a lead writer job when they are not up for doing it. It is also not doing the world a favor and the people in it a favor saying you can only be a lead writer if you've already been like in a writing room on the, this many TV shows. Because that is very restrictive. How can a person know whether or not they're ready for that opportunity if, if that opportunity has never been uh, given to them and they've never failed at it? You have to know where someone's at. And experience is just part of it because there's lots of people who've experienced just because they keep showing up stuff and people see them as the guy who showed up last time right and managing from that perspective you're not going to innovate and a lot of the time you're going to wind up with people who are not very good at their jobs um you also can't put someone into a job by saying hey i'd really like to work with you you're a nice person that doesn't work that's setting somebody up so that a few months down the road you're either going to have to fire them or have a project that is no good so what you do instead if you are in a leadership position, is you go, what skills do you and do you not have? And if you need something done, you put people on it who have that particular skill. It's not just the skill of being a writer. It's like, are you good at scheduling meetings and hitting deadlines? Are you good at punching up scripts and making them funnier? Are you good at coming up with story ideas? Do you have a lot of knowledge about the thing that we're writing about? Are you really good at whatever? Those are all different. You need all of those things in the room and all of those tasks will need to get performed on a script before it is done. Um, and the other part of it is what skill do you want to learn? So we work with people who are like brilliant improv comedians but don't know the way around a screenplay. And it's like, that's fine, great. You'll be involved in punching up this joke and we'll pair you with a more experienced writer so that we will teach you the skills that you need to do so that next time you don't need to be paired with a more experienced writer, whether that's on another project or on this one. And sometimes people don't want to learn that other skill. And you can say, that's fine. You're just good. You just want to be good at being funny and you just want to practice being funny. That's, that's great. Here's the script. How do we make it funnier? Turn it back around to the people who are the subject matter experts and the screenwriters and they work it in. And that's okay too. What you were saying is that it's up to the producer and it's up, up to the gatekeepers to understand where each of these specific talents of each of these um, people, regardless of whether those people themselves know it. Yeah. yeah, and it's a vetting process that's not just based on what's on their resume. You take a look at what work that they can do. Maybe they've done amazing work in another field. Maybe they're an incredible playwright or an incredible comedian. Maybe they take beautiful photos. Maybe they're not on IMDb right. because they've been a ghost. Maybe they're a parent. They have had to exercise a lot of patience. <laughs> That's a skill that they have. Maybe, maybe they, uh, they, they understand yeah. um, things from a completely different, through a completely different lens. And that, that all by itself is a, is, is a, has value. That's amazing. Thank you so much for that input. Um, uh, we're going to wrap it up and uh, uh, we're going to finish off with a few rapid fire questions that I ask everyone. Uh, the first one is, uh, what's the worst advice you were ever given? I was dating this girl one time. <laughs> Things weren't going very well. And my brother said, you should make a list of all the things that bother you about her. And then tell her. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Marco. Yeah, anyway. Let's say. 
Amy, uh, how about yourself? <laughs> uh, the wor- I was going to pick it, keep it all focused on film. Uh, the worst advice I ever received was, if you want to be an actor, don't do anything else. Just act, just prep for auditions, and just show up at auditions. I got that one too, yes. Terrible advice, because I'm, like, I'm looking at my, my resume, and I've got, like I don't know, 25 acting gigs, and I have gone to... I've got one of those through a union audition. Yeah, yeah, I got that one too. That's uh, that hits close to home. <laughs> uh, what's the best advice you were ever given? Somebody I really respect in film um, said, "You know, you should really be making a list of everybody that you've ever worked with that you liked and you'd love to work with again." And um, today, my list has close to 3000 people on it that I can call at the drop of a hat and say, are you available? Can you want to work? Can you work on this project? Um, but it also more importantly allows me to, to, to support people within my network and say, you know, when other people are looking for a gaffer or a lamp op or a cinematographer or a costume designer, I can say, here's a list of 20 or 30 people. You can try these people. Um, and, uh, and I've, I've, I find that um, in my line of work, having the ability to do that both for myself as well as for other people um, is, is the biggest contribution I can make. I love that one. The best advice I've ever received is go find someone who's already done this. Cause a lot of the time in independent film, we're like, how do we, how do we do this? I, I get, we'll probably have to figure it out from scratch and we'll build some weird kooky plan that just doesn't make a lick of fucking sense. Um, and is expensive and fails. And then it's like, oh, wait, there's already a service where someone provides that does exactly this. Or I already know someone who's done this thing. I'll just go phone them up and be like, hey, how do tax credits work? And then the, the last one is, uh, in your opinion, what does a more diverse film industry look like? I guess we kind of touched on that. but Yeah. What does a more diverse film industry look like? I, I think that's an easy answer. Uh, it's, it, there, and there's, there's two distinct parts to this right uh, i guess three one is what's happening in front of the camera as in what are your what does your cast look like when it's what's happening behind the camera all of your crew and also what is the story that is being told right so so those three those three things um i think just ought to be representative of the community that it's taking place in so if i'm making a film set in 1800s Japan. I mean, I'm, I don't need to have a diverse cast. I need Japanese people. Um, but I think that I'll, if I'm making a film in contemporary Vancouver, I think it's important that we don't just hire people who look a certain way. I think that, you know, Vancouverites uh, come in all different shapes and sizes, colors. And um, what's important is that, that uh, you take, into account the community in which this is happening, right? Whether that's the story or the actual filming itself. For me, uh, more diverse filmmaking is a set of reciprocal alliances. It's not being like, okay, well, I am transgender. I will only be making transgender cinema from now on. That sounds bloody terrible. And I think a lot of us are in a position where it's like, no, 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 I don't want to just be stuck telling stories about people whose society views as being like me. Um, what I love about this growing trend of this wonderful diversity in filmmaking is being able to be like, oh man, like we're going to work on, on a Mexican American revenge movie. This is fantastic. And the director of that was on the switch the director's cisgender. It doesn't matter. That's fine. Um, and um, another time it's like, we get to go and work on an indigenous project. And then we can say, Hey, we've got a science fiction project. Do you want to be involved in it? It's set like 300 years in the future. And I guess there's some indigenous content, but that's not the focus of it. Um, it's this wonderful matrix of a variety of human beings solving these problems that face all of us. I see us building a better future. When people are building fictional worlds, uh, what's your opinion about uh, making those fictional worlds more diverse? Well, I mean, it's fiction, isn't it? And that that gives us license to create whatever world we want. And if we're going to be doing that, why don't we create the world that we want? On my end, I can think of a, a few things that people commonly make excuses for um, without really realizing what they're doing. 
So someone's like, well, we're shooting a Western. So, uh, and then it's like, no, did you know that like, oh, there were a hell of a lot of black cowboys and a hell of a lot of Latino cowboys. And people are like, what, really? Um, you take a look at the history of DC. It's been diverse as hell for, for centuries. And people are often like shutting things down before they get out of the gate. But if you are shooting something that's set in like czarist Russia, you can do what they did on the great and be like, okay, look, everyone in this is, is Russian. We're not just going to hire Russian people, but we're also not just going to hire white people. It's just like, hey, well, who can do this job the best? That's that's the other way of doing it. If you, if you actually are stuck with a project that is extremely narrow, you can vary it up because people know it's not real and it's not supposed to be. And it's, it's wonderful. And then you can have a better a better future set in the past and help build a better future. Um, the other part of it is um, don't be afraid to go out and ask questions from subject matter experts and involve people in your project. So like right now, our science fiction project, we got a lot of feedback over the years that people are saying, you know, it sounds like the, the way into this character is this young Indonesian Muslim woman. And we're like, we do not have anyone on the team who sounds like that. But as soon as we went out and said, First of all, can we just get some ground level consultation on what we're doing to make sure we're not making a total mess of it? All of these people came out and were like, yes, me, please, me, please, me, please. I want to have some feedback. And every piece of feedback we've got has been an amazing experience. And we've interviewed a bunch of consultants and all the consultations have been really wonderful experiences. Sometimes a lot of the time people have said, I can see you're doing this. And it reminds me of this problematic trope. And then they will express their anger about this problematic trope. Now, so far, because we did our basic research, we're like, no, we're not doing this. And they're like, oh, well, that's fantastic. And then they move on to like other great ideas. But the other, the next step of this is it's like, no, this is a key character. We need to involve this in our writing process. And just be, um, by having someone whose lived experience can be reflected at a, in a key position in our team, not just, not just bringing in outside consultants. Um, that can be a more difficult process, but it can also be a wonderful process because you get other perspectives and you make better media. Before we go, uh, would you like to plug any of your social media or anything that, um, uh, uh, anywhere that we can find you? You always uh, follow us on Trembling Void. Uh, we're on Instagram and Facebook. Um, trembling like shaking, void like space. That's right. And, uh, you know, you can follow, in, if you're interested in, in, the topic of, of diversity and inclusion, representation and authenticity, um, you'll want to pay particularly close attention to a project called Synthesis, which is the optimistic science fiction project that Amy uh, referred to a moment ago. Um, what, we're, what we're wanting to do in that show is uh, essentially pick up where Star Trek left off, which is to say, okay, well, we understand that there is a version of utopia that uh, society ought to strive for but maybe we don't all agree on what that is. And, uh, and, and setting this in a future distant uh, world allows us to explore that and, and, and understand how, um, and hopefully come to the conclusion that we have a lot more in common than not. And if you want to see how we're going to make this amazing show, check us out at This Is Season Zero. So that's hashtag This Is Season Zero, where our podcasts are, I think just now, I think the first one just dropped. Uh, coming up. That is so cool. Okay, well, thank you so much, Ingo. Thank you, Amy. Thank you very much. Woohoo! Thank you again for listening in. I really hope you guys found something interesting and valuable out of that conversation because I know I definitely did. Uh, what Amy said about character development and how to expand um, the diversity in story is something that I share as well, but I've never really been able to put it in words in such an elegant way, so uh, thank you. What Ingo said about uh, mumbles, grumbles, and rumbles is something that's stuck with me since I've heard it and has informed some of the most difficult decisions that I've had to make in the last few weeks. So thank you, Ingo. If anyone wants to know more about production managing, and anything that we talked about in this podcast, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook um, and uh, sign up for our newsletter because that is where uh, Ingo and Amy has shared some resources for us that we can share with you guys. This newsletter is like a weekly newsletter um, where every time a podcast episode is released, we'll be 
sharing some additional information through this newsletter uh, from our guests and from ourselves. So uh, please consider signing up. That's all for today. Uh, thank you again, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to BIPOC Credits by Andy Wong. We hope you enjoyed our episode. This episode was produced by Nightingale. Our editor is Rihanna Toy. Graphics by Joshua Lamb. Theme music by Peter Robinson. Intro and outro voiceover by Mike Lee. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and Instagram at BIPOC Credits. If you're enjoying what we're doing here, consider supporting us on Patreon and subscribe to our newsletter to get all of the juicy information that we didn't quite get to on this podcast. Thank you once again for listening to BIPOC Credits. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.